You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 13. And then uh, I also want you to put a marker in Romans chapter 1. So find those two places. We're going to be in Hebrews first, and then we'll get to Romans chapter 13. One in just a moment. So we are in this series, Be Bold, and we're addressing some of these controversial topics. They're not controversial if you just believe God's word, but they are a little controversial. The darker the days get, the bolder the Christians must be, and so we're challenging you to be bold about some specific things, to be bold about the origin of man, to be bold about the sanctity of life today. I want to challenge you to be bold about the significance of marriage. And in saying that, I want to acknowledge, I realize not everybody in the room is married. And some of you checked out when I said that. I'm like, well, this message is not for me. Oh, yes, it is. How many of you in the room are married? Hold up those wedding rings. Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, not everybody's married. And uh, there are people here who have never been married. And I acknowledge there are people in this room that desperately want to be married. I know there's people here that have at the top of your prayer request list, Lord, please send me a marriage partner. I often remind those people, there are people in church today who are married, that their prayer request at the top of their list is, Lord, would you please allow me to be single again? because this is not going well. This is not what I thought it would be. And so when we talk about the significance of marriage, please understand, as significant as marriage is, marriage is not ultimate. You can't look to marriage for something God never intended marriage to provide. God did not create marriage to fulfill your every longing as a human being. He created Your heart was created to know him to meet those needs. And so as we talk about that, I acknowledge there are people here who have never been married. And yet 91% of us, if statistics hold true, at some point in our lives will be married. There are people here who are single again. You were married and maybe through the loss of a loved one, through death, you're a widow, or maybe uh, there was a divorce. Some of you are here, you've been single, you were married, you were single again, and now you're married again. Maybe you're in your second marriage or maybe even your fifth marriage. Let me just go on record to say at the beginning of this thing, it doesn't matter if you're in your first marriage or your fifth marriage. Our goal is to make sure this is your last marriage. Okay, that's, that's the thing that we're going for here. And so whatever's in your past, it's all about what's happening right now and in the future for you. And there are people here that I just want to acknowledge from the very beginning. There are people here that are Dealing with a same-sex attraction (gasps) in church? Yes, in church, in this church. And we're going to look at what God's Word has to say to people that deal with that particular issue. And so, have I got your curiosity up now? It's like, man, some of you really leaned in when Pastor Nathan said, seventh grade and above. It's like, that's the first time you paid attention in church in your life. It's like, man, this is going to be hot, you know, and steamy. Well, it's going to be appropriate, but we are going to look at what God's word has to say here unapologetically to us about the issue of marriage. So here in Hebrews chapter 13, I want us to start with this one verse. It says, Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all. So marriage is something that is honorable. 
to God. And you have a responsibility, if you're to obey this verse, whether you're married or single, there is a part that you play in honoring the institution of marriage. Not only the institution of marriage, but your particular marriage. Some of you say, well, I can't honor marriage because I'm not married. Please listen. What you're doing with your life right now will determine whether or not you have an honorable marriage later on for some of you. There are things that some of you are doing to dishonor marriage before you actually have one. And so marriage is to be held in honor among all. All single people need to honor marriage. All married people need to honor marriage. And then it goes on and says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Now, I preach from the English Standard Version. It's a good version. It's not the only version, but it's the one we use here. And he, the, the, the translators of the English Standard Version have done us a favor. They've actually camouflaged and sanitized the Greek words that were used where it says marriage bed. Can I just tell you what it's talking about there? In case you haven't figured that out, it's talking about the act of sex. And in this verse, it says that we are to hold marriage in such high esteem, and one of the ways that we do that is by making sure that the act of sex is undefiled. That means undiluted, unpolluted, not blurred or marred in any way. The act of sex is such an honorable thing when it is in the context of a marriage bed that we have an obligation to God. It's an act of worship to God to keep that from being defiled. We're going to look at how it gets defiled a little later on. And then it says this, For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If you needed a little motivation to keep the marriage bed undefiled, here's a little motivation. God takes very seriously when the act of sex is defiled. So much so that the Bible says that he actively gets involved in judging those who defile it. How do you defile it? It mentions two things. Sexual immorality, we'll talk more about that in a minute, and the act of adultery. So premarital sex, extramarital sex, any sexual activity outside of a marriage is something that God takes very seriously. So today, we want to answer three questions. First of all, what makes marriage so significant? Secondly, what causes marriage to become insignificant? 41% of people surveyed said, you know what, marriage is obsolete. That just is really not part of a good cultural thing for us to do. And the third question is this, how do I honor the significance of marriage? You personally, your marriage, you as a single person, what must you do to obey Hebrews 13, 4. So let's deal with the first question in this way by answering it in three ways. Number one, marriage is designed and defined by God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, if you've been here the past two weeks, you realize this is a recurring verse. From the very first page of the Bible, we're seeing things that God wants us to be bold about. God created man. 
in his own image. And so we dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. The origin of man, you're not, you are not an amoeba that formed in a primordial soup and grew into the person you are today. You are a special created being by God with intentionality. God created you. And the Bible says that we are stamped in his image. In the image of God, he created them. So the fingerprints of God are all over you because you are stamped with the image of God. You have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. That means that every human life is precious and is to be protected. And so we looked at the sanctity of life last week. But then look at the next part. God tells us very specifically that he created them male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Listen, gender is assigned by God. Gender is not an accident. Gender is something that has a very special created purpose. And so God has created men and women equal, but he has not made them the same. We are different in every cell of our bodies, and those differences have a created purpose, that when they come together, they complement one another in a way that brings glory to God, and, in case you haven't noticed, it is the combination of the two, two genders that makes babies. And God says that is a blessed thing. So he created them male and female. He blessed them, and God says, get after it. We need some kids. That's what he said. And he's excited when kids show up through the, the sexual union of a man and a woman in a covenant marriage relationship. And so God gave us the institution of marriage. A lot of debate in our culture today about what marriage is. Can I just clear it up for you? Marriage is, if you were to take everything the Bible has to say about marriage and smash it into one sentence, it would sound like this. Marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God and conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. Did you get that? Don't try to write that down. That's just kind of an overview. In case you were wondering, that all those different pieces are very important to the definition of what marriage is. Now, what we need to understand is because the state did not design marriage, it cannot recreate marriage. Because the state didn't define marriage to begin with, God did that, you can't redefine something that God has defined. And so we understand that this nation if it wants the blessing of God, needs to recognize and regulate marriage according to God's design and definition. However, if you want to invite the judgment of God, as we've read about this morning, start playing around with God's definitions. That's a problem. So we want to honor marriage by understanding marriage is designed by God and defined by God. Here's the second thing. Marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Look here in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul, in writing to the church, wants to remind them of something he read on the first page of the Bible. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, and he says this, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, first of all, I want you to notice there's four references to gender in that one verse. God is very specific about the role of a man in a marriage and the role of a, of a, of a wife in a marriage, the role of a father and the role of a mother. God wants all those differences working in harmony to create a marriage. And in the context of that marriage, do you know what happens? You actually reflect the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his church. Do you know the plot line of the Bible? Do you know the story? There's only one story in the Bible. Do you know it? Here it is. A father sent a son to win a bride so that from their union there would be spiritual children. That's the plot line of the Bible. The Bible opens with a wedding. And on the last page of the Bible, do you know what we find? A wedding. Everything in the Bible is illustrating for us how God wants to have union with you. He wants to take two very distinct things. I don't know if you can call God a thing, an entity, a, a holy God. A holy God and a sinful man and put them together in harmony. And everything that it takes for a husband to be in harmony with a wife is what it shows about the relationship that Jesus has with his bride. Jesus has a very resistant, ugly bride. She's got wrinkles and flaws. She can't stand up half the time. She's disoriented. She's pursuing other lovers. And Jesus, as the groom, wins that bride over through grace and forgiveness and love. We, as the church, if you are in the church, if you're connected to the church through union with Christ, you are someone who has been won by the love of a perfect groom. That's the story of the Bible. And your marriage, are you married? Are you gonna be married? Your marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. The question is, is it a true or a false picture? Your marriage preaches a gospel. It either preaches a gospel that is full of love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, permanence, commitment, sacrifice, service, or it preaches a gospel that is absent of those things and is filled with bitterness and strife and tension and adultery and unfaithfulness, and your marriage is preaching a false gospel that looks nothing like the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church. That's how significant your marriage is. It's a picture of the relationship Jesus has with his church. Your marriage is either displaying or distorting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how significant marriage is. And then number three, understand this, marriage is the only place where you can experience the pleasure of sex and the pleasure of God at the same 
time. Yes, you are now writing in the blank the word sex in church. She's like, oh, I didn't think I would ever do that. Yes, there it is. Now, I want you to think about the ramifications of this statement. Marriage is the only place where you can experience the pleasure of sex and the pleasure of God in the exact same moment. Do you want to live your life for the pleasure of God? Do you want God to smile on your life? you want God to be pleased with your life? Well, here it is. When it comes to sex, the only place that you can experience the pleasure of sex at the same time God being pleased with what you are doing is in the context of marriage. So we don't play around with this precious gift. So we need to ask the question, okay, so what is this gift of sex that God has given? Can we give it a definition in church? Here it is. Sex is a wedding gift that God gives to men and women who enter into an exclusive lifelong covenant with each other for the purpose of pursuing companionship and resulting in a legacy of godly children. Is that a surprising definition of sex for you? All we did was couple sex with everything we see in Scripture that God designed sex to be attached to. Sex was attached to a wedding to a covenant, to a man and a woman who are pursuing companionship, oneness, understanding that it is their sexual relationship that is intended to produce the next generation of godly children. So we need to get a better definition of sex than the one that we've been playing with. Now, we need to understand that God has designed us as sexual beings. It's not something to be afraid of. Uh, Sex is not a four-letter word. It's a good gift that God gives to people who enter into this lifelong relationship. And our ultimate joy is found when we do things God's way. Don't you think that God who invented the body that invented the biological plumbing of a male and the biological plumbing of a female, don't you think that he knew what he was doing when he put those two things uh, on the planet? And then God wants your body to experience maximum joy. And so in order for you to experience maximum joy, he puts boundaries around things that will ultimately destroy your joy. And so that's why he gives us this wedding gift in the context of marriage. Now, if that's the definition of marriage, please understand, anything outside of that definition, God considers sin. Have you heard of sin? Have you heard of this concept of sin? It's not a popular concept, but it's still a concept that we need to be aware of. What is sexual sin? Well, first of all, let me just say that I, prob- I, would, I would think that every person in this room right now is a sexual sinner. I, I know that you're all sinners, but probably you have stepped outside of the boundaries that God intended sex to be in. And so what that means is we read the scripture, God identifies a lot of things that are outside of those boundaries and are 
off limits for those of us who claim Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. That means that lust is sin. Inappropriate touching is sin. Friends with benefits is sin. Using pornography is sin. Self-gratification is sin. Extramarital sex is sin. Premarital sex is sin. Polygamy is sin. Rape is sin. Incest is sin. Prostitution is sin. Human trafficking is sin. Same-sex activity is sin. And same-sex marriage is not even a real thing. So, what do you do with a bunch of sexual sinners? You are loved. Let's dismiss the service and go home. Is that what we should do? No, let me just say, hey, we're all in the bucket of at some point driving in a lane outside of God's parameters for sex. So the question is, does the gospel speak to sin? Absolutely. Whatever bucket, whatever particular sexual sin you've committed, you need to understand there's power, there's hope, and there's forgiveness in the gospel, but there is judgment for those who will not repent and believe and put themselves under God's definition. We're all sexual sinners. So the next question is this, what's causing marriage to become so insignificant? Well, I believe the reason we see the insignificance of marriage in our culture, the reason why people aren't getting married anymore and those that are throwing away marriage as soon as it gets hard, the reason it's becoming so insignificant is because we are trying to experience sex without everything else in that definition. The world and the culture will try to hold out to you a definition of sex that does not involve children. Because of the invention and the, the availability of contraception and abortion, we tend to view children as an inconvenience that shows up when contraception fails or we choose not to get an abortion. As a result, there are less and less children and our view of children is something less than the precious gift that God intended them to be. Hey, are you aware that Islam is the fastest growing world religion? Did you know that? Is that because those in the Muslim religion are converting people to Islam? Not so much. Do you know why it's the fastest growing religion? They're still having babies. Wow, what are Christians doing? The average couple in America has 1.7 children. That's not even enough to sustain the population. And so we look at children as something that get in the way of our career goals and, oh, we want to stay married and we just kind of want to focus on each other for a few years and, and then pretty soon it's like, you know, well, I just don't think this is the right time and we just keep putting it, putting it, putting it. And we, we aren't being fruitful and multiplying, as God says. Now, that doesn't mean if you have nine children, you somehow get extra brownie points in heaven, okay? And, and it doesn't mean that if you don't have children, somehow you're not blessed by God. Uh, Infertility is a real thing. One in six married couples experiences fertility issues, and, and we grieve and we mourn, and, and our hearts ache for those that want children, but for some reason, God's not allowed that. And at some point, after we've prayed all of our prayers, we have to throw our hands up and say, God, we trust you. 
We trust your providence. We trust your sovereignty. And then we can start pursuing maybe other options like adoption. There's so many kids available that, that need a godly home. And yet we've tried to find our sexual pleasure decoupled, detached from the thought that this sexual union will bring children into the world. And then we've detached sex from marriage. A few weeks ago, I was up in Barrie, Ontario, Canada, and uh, I was preaching at one of our Harvest Bible chapels up there. Pastor Todd Dugard is our pastor up there, great friend, great pastor. It was church number three in the movement. And um, uh, he invited me to come in and do a marriage conference. Andrea and I were there, and then I got to preach uh, in their three services at 9 o'clock, actually two minutes before 9 o'clock, right before I was to stand up and preach, there was a lady that came up to Pastor Todd. We were sitting together on the front row, and she had no idea that I was there, that I was going to preach. But she just came up and said, hey, Pastor Todd, you know I'm in a relationship with, with this guy and have been. We don't believe in that whole marriage and getting a piece of paper type of thing, but we're going to go down in Florida, and we'd like you to come down there and, and just kind of recognize our relationship. And Pastor Todd leaned over to us like, you know, I think you might want to listen today's message, I, I think God might have something to say to you because I was preaching on marriage. And uh, in that, I actually told the story of, of couples in our church who were pretending to be married, had had a relationship for a long time and just kind of acted like they were married, but they'd never exchanged vows, never made promises, never entered into covenant, never filed down at the courthouse for a marriage license. And uh, people say to me all the time, like, we don't need a piece of paper to show that we love each other. And I say, yes, you do. Well, why is that? Because one of these days, Mr. Boyfriend or Mr. Girlfriend's going to wake up and he's not going to feel the love. <laughs> and he's not going to remember all these nice little things he said to you out on the dinner date. And he's going to find somebody cuter than you. And he's going to want to pursue them. Do you know what that piece of paper does? That piece of paper reminds him of the promise that he made to remain faithful for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. Sign on the dotted line, please. We want to remind you of that promise. And we're even going to go so much, we're going to file it. We're going to put it on record at the courthouse. The state's even going to recognize this thing. Yeah, the piece of paper is important because it is a record of the promise that you made in covenant relationship. It's like, well, we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. You're sinning in God's eyes. Well, we're married in our hearts. No, you're married in your pants. That's your problem <laughs> is you think that you can have sex without marriage. And you're driving in a lane that's going to end in disaster. And so get the piece of paper. If you're living with somebody, come and talk to us. We'll just have your wedding right in front of the whole church if we need to. But we want to make sure that we honor marriage and keep the marriage bed undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We think we can have sex without marriage. We think we can have sex without companionship. And so we've created a hookup culture. We've created a culture where we don't think of sex in terms of loving someone if sex is just a means to fulfill your selfish pleasure. You don't have to love someone. You just have to use someone. 
And so we begin to give ourselves physically to someone who will not give us their heart, will not give us the rest of their lives. We want to be, we want to feel loved, but we don't even know the person that we're in a relationship with because there's no companionship. And the culture has now made it possible for you to have sex without a partner. Who needs a person when you have a smartphone? that will create digital images, that will create thoughts and chemical explosions in your mind that will give you the false sense of sexual pleasure outside of the context that God created you to experience that in covenant marriage. The culture holds out to you the promise of sex without gender. And today this is the hot button issue. It's the final departure from God's design for sex. When our gender is detached from God's divine design to think of gender and sexual orientation as something that I choose rather than something God assigns, then I think of sex without gender. Despite the self-evident biological compatibility that God has built into the human anatomy, we've created a whole infinite array of genders outside of male, female. That's why we have a culture in which Glamour Magazine on Friday announced their woman of the year was, wait for it, Bruce Jenner. You say, don't you mean Caitlyn Jenner? No, I mean Bruce. Because, I don't know, I, when I was in eighth grade, I took this science class, and I learned about these chromosomes. And uh, in every cell of the body, there's either an XX chromosome, which assigns your gender female, or there's an XY chromosome that assigns your gender male. It's a wonderful creative thing that God's done in every cell of your body. And you can cut parts off and attach parts and shoot chemicals into your brain of the opposite sex. Until you're able to solve that chromosome problem, you are assigned an agenda, male and female. You say, but, and I want to be sensitive to those of you that have a same-sex attraction or that, that you have a loved one that has a same-sex attraction. By the way, just get it on the table here. Does anybody have a friend, a loved one that has a same-sex attraction? Hold up your hand. Hold your hand. I, I have a friend that I pray for and I love, and, and he identifies himself as a gay Christian. And um, there's material being written. There's um, people that are trying to go back and do a different kind of understanding of the Bible that seeks to give an alternate definition to the six passages in the Bible that very clearly tell us that God assigns gender and that anything outside of that is sexual sin. Matthew Vines has written a book called God and the Gay Christian and, and just really through a crazy, unconventional, heretical, hermeneutic tells us that, well, they didn't really understand this monogamous, you know, relationship that gay couples have today and if the Bible just really doesn't speak of that. Come on. I'm grateful for other theologians who have actually come out and said, you know what, I have a same-sex attraction but I am committed to being sexually pure and celibate. And I pray 
that God changes that, but he may never change that. But you know what? I'm not going to act on the attraction because I know it's outside the boundaries of what God would have for me. By the way, uh, Todd Dugard, our pastor there in Barrie, Ontario, he's done a four-part sermon series with tons of research, tons of videos, the most comprehensive thing I know about on this issue. If you go to When Cultures Clash, whenculturesclash.ca for Canada, you'll find all those different resources, far more than anything I could get to in this message. But I just want to say to you that if you try to experience anything outside of God's definition for marriage or for sex, it's going to leave you confused and it's going to leave you frustrated because that is not what God designed you to experience. So what do you say to a person that says, I believe I was born that way? Do you believe people are born that way? Listen, I don't, I don't pretend to know all the different factors that go into why someone would have a same-sex attraction. I do know that there's never been any chemical or genetic or biological evidence that somehow there's a gay gene. You know, there, it's just, there's, there's no evidence to that. But I do know this. Biblically, historically, sociologically, and personally, there is a mountain of evidence that tells us everyone is born with a disorientation away from God. Do you know that? Every one of us is a born sexual sinner. Everybody. You know what it does? That means that we are a magnet to sin and we are allergic to God and we want to go our own way. And so when it comes to the issue of sex, everybody is bent toward an orientation that is outside the boundaries God has for us. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you, are you familiar with the movie Woodlawn? You, have you seen this? And you should go see it. Go see Woodlawn. If you're not doing anything this afternoon, go, go to Woodlawn. If you're not coming to make us har- Making Harvest My Home, which you're all coming to at 5 o'clock. But to go see this movie. A couple of weeks ago, we actually hosted the premiere for Woodlawn down at the Morris. How many of you were at that event? Did you see that? For those of you there, did you see what was happening about, a, about 15 minutes before the event? As the actors arrived, this happened. Now, if you look close... That is your pastor sitting in a 2015 Corvette. How did that happen? Don't get nervous. I drive a 10-year-old Mazda, okay? So, so what that is was a friend tossed the keys to me because the actors actually arrived in that. Sean Aston kind of drove up in that. We wanted to make a big deal for him. And, and he, the, the owner of the vehicle tossed me the keys. And so now, now that he's gotten out, I need you to take it back three blocks away and park it until we can find somebody that actually is a good driver to take it back to the lot where it will be sold. And so I got the keys and I got in and I got to drive this thing. Now, let me just tell you something. The way I was born, I was born to go fast, all right? <laughs> And I got in that thing, and every desire in my body was to burn out right there in front of the Morris and all my church members and my kids and God and everybody. 
and just lay down some rubber. And I'm telling you, I seriously, seriously thought about that. I was wondering how many video cameras were rolling at that point and how long the jail sentence would be uh, and what the cost and the payoff of all. I mean, seriously, those things were going through my mind. But for the sake of my children, (laughs) I restrained myself. And I never got above 19 miles an hour (laughs) as I drove that thing through South Bend to the parking lot and handed the keys back to the owner. Sadly disappointed that all of my passions and desires had not been fulfilled. I drove carefully in the lane that I was assigned to. I stopped at the stoplight. I used my little blinker. And I obeyed all the traffic laws back there. Now, I could have rationalized. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, I could have rationalized the people that make traffic laws are stupid and do not understand my desires to go fast. Completely underestimating my skills as a driver, I could have done all that. So why are the laws there? The laws are there for the common good. What if I had taken the Mustang through a school zone at 150 miles an hour? And I was pulled over and the officer came up and said, what are you thinking? I was born to go fast. And he would say, well, we have some laws around here for the protection of children. You have to limit your speed. You have to drive in the proper lane. You have to limit your freedom for the flourishing of all. A few have to limit what they do with their desires. Do you get my picture? You understand what I'm saying? Listen, we are all sexual sinners. If you struggle with the same sex attraction, I can identify with you. I struggle with an opposite sex attraction. Okay? My, my wife is sitting on the front row. Dare I say, I'm attracted to other women. Oh, Pastor Trent's attracted to other women. Let's all pray. You hypocrite, so are you. But you know what my wife expects me to do? My wife expects me to limit my freedom. And to focus intentionally upon her, my children expect that. My church expects that. So if your excuse for involving yourself in same-sex activity is that you were born that way, I'm sorry, we were all born to sin. And yet what the gospel does is gives us power to resist the temptation. Sexual sin begins with sexual temptation. Sexual temptation is not sin until you act upon it, until you press the accelerator. And so what you do is you get in the lane despite the desire that God has assigned you to run in. I believe that certain people are born with a predisposition to anger. We don't allow them to go beat people up. We say, don't, don't do that. Some people are born with a predisposition to alcohol. 
we say, you know what, it's probably good for you not to drink. We expect you to drink less, not drink more. Some people are born possibly with a same-sex attraction or an opposite-sex attraction, and we say to you, you know what, how are you going to deal with that temptation knowing what God has said are the lanes that he designed you to run in? So let's answer this third question. Here it is. And let me just give you this. Sex without God reveals sex has become God. What we're saying is that sexual sin is actually a worship issue. We're giving the best of ourselves to something less than God. And we are giving ourselves to something he created rather than giving ourselves to the creator himself. Sex without God reveals sex has become your God. You're willing to sacrifice your relationship with God in order to maintain your relationship with whatever object of sex you're focused on. So here's the third question. How do I honor the significance of marriage? So what can you personally do to honor marriage? No matter you're single, you're married, you're same-sex attracted, you're opposite-sex attracted, what do you do? Well, here's the first thing. For all of us is a commitment I will protect my marriage from sexual sin. You've got your Bibles open now to Romans chapter 1. You have it? Look in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wrath of God. Do you remember how he takes very personally and seriously what you do sexually? Yeah, so much so that he does not ignore sin. Every sin will be settled in the courtroom of God, either on the cross in Jesus Christ or by experiencing wrath upon yourself. Wrath is not an option. The question is, is God going to divert his wrath for your sin to Jesus on the cross, or are you going to absorb it yourself? It all depends on what you do with his offer of grace. If you accept his offer of grace, if you put your life and your sexual life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, he will divert his wrath to Jesus Christ. If you refuse, if you resist, if you rationalize, if you justify, if you blame others for your sexual sin, you will become the object of God's wrath. Sadly, it doesn't have to be that way. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. All homosexual unrighteousness. All heterosexual unrighteousness. It's all in the same bucket. It's all unrighteousness. And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The word suppress means to choke out or hide under or bury the truth. What you're hearing today is truth. And if you're not careful, it's going to be hard for you to think of living this way. And so instead of receiving it, you want to suppress it and find an excuse why you're the way you are and why that can't be true. That's what sinful men do who won't repent. 
but men and women who put their lives under the Lord Jesus Christ. They protect their marriage from sexual sin. Look down at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God that created this body to be honored in the context of marriage, the honor of marriage. He says now they're dishonoring their bodies because they're using their bodies in sexual relationship outside of God's intended purpose. They're driving outside the lanes they were designed to drive in and it's bringing dishonor to the body and then it notice it says because of their repeated unrepentance, because of their repeated insistence to go their own way and drive in forbidden lanes, God gave them up. Do you understand that guilt is a gift? If I lay my hand on a hot stove, there will be a sensation of pain that will run up my arm through the nerve endings and into my brain, which will signal neutrons and protons or something to go back down my arm and motivate my arm to get off the hot stove. Is, that, is pain a good thing? Pain is a gift. Otherwise, I would fry my arm off. God wants me to keep my arm, so he gives me pain. It's a wonderful thing he's put in the body. God has put within the human soul guilt to warn you when you are doing things that's going to destroy you personally, sexually, and in your family so that it would motivate you to change directions and to get off. Listen, Guilt is a gift. You shouldn't be concerned if you're experiencing tremendous guilt right now. You should be concerned if you're not. Because there comes a point that God will actually give you up. And says, if, if you want it, have at it. Let's see how that works for you. And God backs away. And so if you're not experiencing guilt because you've done it so often and you've seared your conscience so much, that ought to scare you to death. That is the ultimate judgment that God leaves you to pursue your own passion apart from him. But we need to protect our marriages from sexual sin. Here's the second thing. I will exchange sexual lies for the truth. Look here in verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What's the root of all sexual sin? You're believing a lie. You are allowing a definition of sex that God didn't write. Who lied to you? I've heard some of your stories. I've heard stories of men in this room that found themselves addicted to porn, abusing women, even believing that they were gay, and it all traced back to an encounter when they were four years old where a trusted relative seduced them touched them, showed them images, 
And from that point, there's been a struggle to believe the truth about the way that God's made me because the lie that was inserted into my soul from another person. Who lied to you? Maybe it was a mom and a dad. A dad who was passive or abusive or a mom who was controlling and overbearing that in the context of the marriage that you watched as a child, they stamped on your brain a lie about what marriage was. Or, or maybe it was something you saw in a movie or something you read in a romance novel. Lies that were put into your brain by the enemy and maybe even voices that you've heard saying, you're gay. And you believe the lie and suppress the truth. What do you do with that? You suppress the lie and you believe the truth. And you begin to replace the lies, exchange the lies with sexual truth that God wants to give you a wonderful wedding gift in the context of a covenant relationship for the purpose of companionship resulting in children that would leave a legacy of godliness. That's the truth. And we have to replace the lies. How do we do that? Well, you need to separate yourself from sexual temptation. Cut off the source of the lie. If it's coming through media, if it's coming through internet, if it's coming through a smartphone, you cut off your exposure to the lie. And then you replace it with the truth of God's word. You saturate your soul with what God has said about you and about him and about marriage and about sex by reading and memorizing and washing your soul with the water of his word. And then you create a community of people that are there to encourage you and love you and hold you accountable and to pray for you, that know you and know your struggles. That's why our Uncommon Community small groups are so essential to sexual and marriage faithfulness. You've got to exchange the lies for the truth. And then this, allow God to define your identity. Refuse to accept what the culture says about you. Don't let anyone or anything assign your identity except the gospel. I would encourage you not to believe that you are a quote-unquote gay Christian. Why is that? Well, I'm just trying, I'm, I'm not acting on it. But listen, we don't, I don't walk around in church saying, hi, I'm a male Christian. Or I'm a female Christian. We, we don't let people go up and say, I'm an angry Christian. I'm a kleptomaniac Christian because I, I, have, I have temptation to steal things that don't belong to me. No, we don't identify with our sin. We identify with the gospel that sets us free and reassigns our identity in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They gave up on God and God gave them up to their sin. So instead of pursuing their identity in God, they pursued their identity in their sexuality. Who does that? Here's the last thing. I will worship the creator rather than his creation. Look at verse 25 again. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is the ultimate problem. Is that we want to worship created things like the human body or created things like passions or the chemicals that fire in your brain, the, the oxytocin and the, the dopamine that fire, they're created things and we end up worshiping those things rather than going to God, our creator, who created all those things and created us to have relationship with him. Listen, as we close today, if you're experiencing some guilt, that's good, that's a gift. But you've gotta go somewhere with that and we need to go to the Lord right now with Whatever he said to you, I don't know where you are, I don't know what you struggle with, we all struggle in some way, we're all tempted. Why don't we just bow our heads for a minute and would you just acknowledge to the Lord what he already knows. Lord, I am a sexual sinner. I have stepped out of bounds. The temptations, the secret things, maybe you've even been so hardened in marriage that you're trying to find another outlet for desires and passions that God intended for you to experience only in the context of marriage. Why don't you just confess that to him? Say, Lord, I'm, I'm bringing you my passions. I'm bringing you my marriage. I'm bringing you my singleness. Lord, I recognize that you designed and defined marriage. It's a picture of your relationship with the church. Lord, I, I need help. I'm so used to covering, so used to rationalizing. And Lord, as your creation, I, I want your pleasure on my life. So God, would you set me free from the chains that have bound me to sin? Just tell him that. God, would you give me a picture of what it would be like to leave a godly legacy to children that are pure? Father, I want to pray for my friends here today. God, would you empower us by your spirit to do what's right in every situation? We're all tempted. We live in a culture where there's more temptation, there's more draw, there's more darkness than there's ever been. I pray that this would be a place where people take seriously what you've said about marriage, what you've said about our gender, what you've said about our sexuality. I pray that this would be a light for people that are struggling and burned and the, the wasteland of people that have tried to find satisfaction in anything other than you. God, would this be a place where your gospel meets the deepest needs of our heart? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.